Hello guys, welcome. Thank you for tuning in for one last time in this EFL season. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast. It's me, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Ellick, and we will be recapping the EFL playoff finals, which took place over the weekend. And fittingly, that very last match of this remarkable, in so many ways, EFL season headed to extra time. We got some bonus EFL football to send us into the summer. Uh, so much to talk about on this podcast. We'll be recapping the games. We'll be talking about what it, what we think it means for the clubs who have won promotion and also for those who'll be sticking around in that division next season. George Ellick, did you enjoy playoff final weekend as much as playoff semi-final second leg weekend <laughs> the week before? It might have been slightly less goal-filled, uh, but still laden with drama. It was very hot. I can tell you that it was. I'm very rouge today. Um, yeah, it, it was great. I mean, it's. I think we were treated to some really interesting games. Um, let's say maybe not the goal fests that we necessarily expected, but in terms of actual contests, um, I think all three offered something a bit different to each other. Um, and yeah, I, I guess a, maybe a shame we didn't have one that really kicked off. But, but it's pretty rare that the playoff finals do. Um, and um, I, it's yeah. I, I don't think you can necessarily, over the course of the whole season, argue that the three teams who went up um, didn't deserve to go up. Um, I think all three of them were the best teams outside of the, the the ones who got automatically promoted. And it's not always that you can say that, even if maybe on the day specifically one of them maybe weren't uh, can count themselves a little bit fortunate um, to have uh, to have got through and, pro- and got promoted. You're getting dangerously close. When you say the three best teams outside of those that get automatically promoted and also Brentford, Blackpool and Morecambe, who won promotion through the playoffs, were the three teams that finished closest to the automatic promotion spots in their individual leagues. You're getting quite close to agreeing with the league table there, George, which feels very non-George Ellick. Sometimes lies <laughs> and this occasion didn't lie, <laughs> didn't, didn't lie. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say if anything you could maybe argue that those teams or at least a couple of those teams deserve to be in the automatic promotion zones already. Mm. Well, let's chat about how it all went down. Uh, We'll start with the championship playoff final on Saturday, which probably against what we had thought would happen started like an absolute whirlwind. George Brentford were tuning up after half an hour. Swansea hadn't even had a shot at that point before any of the goals we'd seen a uncharacteristically nasty tackle from Matt Grimes it, it really was like a very busy start quite a frantic start to the game and that really didn't suit Swansea City in the end it didn't no I mean credit to, to Brentford for for getting off to the start that they did um, and credit to Brian and Bomo who I think after what has been a really disappointing season for him individually uh, you know we often think of, of Brentford players once once kind of the senior players move on, which is, was in his case, um, both Ben Rama and Watkins, you expect the Mbomo to come through and be the star. And I would argue that he was probably more of a star in his first season than in his second season. However, in the playoffs, he has played a huge role in getting Brentford to the Premier League, despite himself not actually scoring or assisting a goal. You know, he it was him whose who's run brought brought about the sending off of, of Chris Meppham in the semi-final. It was his run um, and brilliant play that got him and you know his searing pace really that got him on the end of a Sergi Canos through ball and led to the penalty that Ivan Tony converted um so yeah and then again for the for the for the Marcondes goal he played a key role as well so he's just 
he's obviously a goal threat and someone who has hot and cold streets, shall we say, in front of goal. He, he feels like a real confidence finisher. Maybe a bit like Jamal Lowe, actually, thinking in Swansea terms, but but maybe more so than a lot of players at the level. But what he always is, is this like terrifying prospect for defenders out of possession because of that speed, which, you know, that took my breath away, the, the way that he got to that through ball from Canos in order to, to win the penalty off Woodman. But even, even aside from that, when you're a defender, there's a bouncing ball or you have to take a first touch and it's bobbling a little bit. Burma's just terrifying, buzzing around on, on your blind side, any backwards header as Gehi found out or sideways pass. And I think it's that part of his skill set that, that really adds to what is um yeah, what has been a, a good goal threat over the last two seasons as well. And of course he was heavily involved in the second goal as well, which was an absolutely amazing lightning counterattack. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a great goal. It was a brilliant three pass, and again his pace being involved and in, in carrying the ball up the pitch. A really nice um, ball from Roslev into Marcondes. And having, my run, kind of... having sprinted like 90 yards. And then my, my favourite bit about it, <clears throat> which was kind of my niche bit of analysis, was the, a, another brilliant bit of movement from um, Mbomo, who's basically standing stationary in the box and makes a little decoy run to his left. Basically, you know, he was never going to get the ball there and it just takes the defender out of position and enables him to set it back for Marcondes, who hits a brilliant first-time finish with his right foot into the bottom right-hand corner. It was devastating counter-attacking football. It's the kind of goal that we're used to seeing teams score on the break in big games like this with five, ten minutes to go when when teams are throwing men forward. And I think Swansea leaving just two men back with Brentford leaving two men forward was a bit of a rookie error after just, whatever it was, 15 minutes of the game. Uh, it was a bit later than that, wasn't it? Yeah, 20 minutes of the game. Um, and then... Straight after that, Ivan Tony nearly scores one of the goals, one of the best goals we've seen at Wembley in playoff games with an incredible chest down and hit, which loops over uh, Freddie Woodman and hits the hits the crossbar. And that kind of signified to me the end of this game as being a fun game of football to watch. Like everything up until in those 22 minutes was, you know, you had two goals, you had the amazing near, near goal, you had Grimes nearly getting sent off. It felt like a pretty one-way one-way game it was all Brentford but at the same time it felt like a really enjoyable game and then I think that just kind of sucked the life out of it where Brentford suddenly had to be like right hold on <clears throat> we're 2-0 up here we don't really need to keep throwing men forward we can sit in our very very cozy um out of position shape and that's what they did and you know Fulton's red card I don't think we really need to get into whether or not it was a red because I think it's it's one of those where there's there's such a big grey area that I think anybody who thinks it's a blatant red, you can't really argue with them. And anybody who thinks it was, he was unlucky because of his foot getting caught in the in the boot of of Jan, uh, sorry of Jensen, um, you can't really argue with them either because it's it's one of those kind of freak incidents where you know the follow through uh, makes it makes it look probably much much worse than it was. But you can't argue that at the end of the day, he's both stamped on his foot and also gone double studs up into the back of his legs after um, the after the. Massive privilege of like five replays. What would you have given there? I would have given a yellow card after, uh, but again after the luxury of a lot of replays. I I think he was trying a trip, a cheap foul. Fulton had been trying that sort of stuff all game. To be honest, he was really fired up. He's actually pretty. He, I think he played quite well as well, but he was always looking for for something like this. I don't think it was a stamp on the Achilles. I don't think that's what he meant to I, do. But I, the stud, definitely... as you say, the stud getting caught in the boot caused that really weird two-footed flying in the air movement and it looks so bad in real time 
Yeah, there was an incident in the first half where Canos did a very similar foul in the corner and Sean Massey was right there and gave it and Canos screamed in her face, which was very similar. It was kind of a stamp on the back of the on the, on the back of the boot and he wasn't even given a yellow card. And, and I've seen it so many times. And again, I'm not going to argue here with Brentford fans who, and I'm sure they don't care, they're in the Premier League, um, Brentford fans who are claiming that it was in some way like a horrific stamp. I don't think it was. I think it was literally just his foot coming down on top of the spot where um where where Jensen's was and um and I, and I maybe it was a cynical trip maybe it was just unlucky but either way I would have given a yellow card it's irrelevant I don't think it's I mean it hasn't changed the game at all it, it didn't feel to me like Swansea were getting themselves back into it obviously we'll never know but I think that the the percentage chance of that red card being the sole reason why why Swansea are going to be in the championship next season is probably under one percent. So this uh, this might be cl- let's not dwell on it. This might be clutching at straws a little bit, but just it's very easy to look at the times of the goals and the fact that Swansea actually finished without even having a shot on target and say that the match was over after twenty minutes. And I think that's probably ninety percent true. But Ayu had a massive chance mm. right at the start of the second half. Yeah, and. More for sort of psychological reasons necessarily than football reasons. I do think that that's a big a big swing, that moment. Like, not that Swansea were battering Brentford or it was backs to the wall stuff at any point, really. But if IU scores that and it was a huge chance, then of course that changes the complexion of the game. And so I would just lean away from saying the game was over after 20 minutes. You haven't said that, but I've seen it quite a lot. It was about as comfortable a playoff final win as you're likely to see. But even within that, you know, that could have really, really changed the dynamic and and Brentford would have had to have dug a little deeper than they needed to. Having said that, they managed the game so well from first to last, tactically, the emotions of it as well, that they were better in every single department, completely, completely deserving of their win and their promotion, I think. Um, Just a word on Steve Cooper and the tactics bit of a weird one for any manager I think to have masterminded a, a brilliant semi-final win in a certain formation 4-3-3 as it was and then switch to 3-5-2 which was their formation for the first three quarters of the season um, for this game I guess it was a bit of a tactical surprise he is known for being a very thoughtful tactician and I have absolutely no doubt that that his reasons for it were very, very sound. And yet it clearly didn't work very well. So the natural response to that is to criticise it and is to to question whether that was the right thing to do. You know, the front two of, of Lowe and Ayu, they really didn't cause any problems. And, you'd, and you could easily say they didn't have much service, but also they were just easily sort of quashed, squashed, if you will, by the Brentford back three. And in you know in our previews we talked about how they'd hurt Barnsley by getting down the sides of those outside centre backs in the three, and they weren't doing that in this game. They they didn't get the service, but also they they just they weren't in those positions to do so. So it also meant that without wide attackers to sort of track Brentford's wing backs, Brentford were able to build the ball so easily down the sides. And you know the last thing you want Brentford to be able to do is build their attacks really, really easily and get into the final third because from there they have so many different ways of hurting you. And you know in the end they didn't have to work that hard in the final third, Brentford, to, to get their two goals. But it, you know it's so it, it's it's you're always looking for reasons when a team loses, but a team does have to lose. I think this one is is kind of low hanging fruit, but it has to be mentioned because it's unusual that someone would switch formation. I think for a playoff final, you can think 
think of a lot of stuff that might have happened better for Swansea in a 4-3-3. But of course, there's absolutely no guarantee is there. So um, I think that's probably the last bit on Swans. I wanted to touch on a couple of Brentford players, uh, individuals, before we talk about the promotion in general, what it means. The man of the match was Marcondes. Now, he caught my eye quite early on before any of the goals. He just had like one really brilliant piece of play in Brentford's defensive third. He took the ball down. I think he jinked inside a man. It was skillful. It was calm. It was composed. He kept the ball. And you just you thought there, OK, Marcondes looks up for this. And at times this season for Brentford, it's those sorts of players, not the stars like Tony, but those sorts of players like... Fosu, Marcondes, um, Jensen to an extent, I guess, who Brentford's success or otherwise kind of stems from how well those guys play because they're all capable of winning matches for, for Brentford, but but their, their performance levels probably aren't as consistent as the superstars that we all know about. And I think Marcondes' strong performance was a huge part of this win. Um, of course, he didn't start the first semi-final. Fosu started in that same role. So, well done to Emmy Marcondes because one of his best games for Brentford. He's he's always flattered to deceive. He's always flattered to win round the fan base. You know we've sometimes wondered exactly what his where his skill set means he should be playing and and how he can impact games. But he was brilliant here and it, and it probably is his last game as well because he's out of contract and I don't think that Brentford are going to uh, to renew it. So he was excellent and Burma you've mentioned was excellent. Um, and then I just wanted to mention the the centre-backs. Uh, of course, Dalsgaard was excellent um, and, and very composed and dependable. But Ethan Pinnock was imperious. Mm. Imperious, yeah. Ethan Pinnock. And that marks a six-year spell at the start of which Ethan Pinnock was playing for Dulwich Hamlet in the Isthmian League, I think, or maybe the Conference South. Uh, and he now wins promotion to the Premier League. And for every team that he's been a part of in that time, whether it's Forest Green or Barnsley or Brentford, He's been a key, key player and a brilliant defender. So I hope he gets his shot in the Premier League. And then big game Pontus, I have to mention, because I have half-jokingly, half-seriously um, called him big game Pontus and questioned whether he his propensity to you know, undo some of his team's hard work in, in big moments, in big games. But in this instance, big game Pontus meant Pontus had a big game. Uh, he was excellent as well. And, you know, th- those two were a big reason why IU and Lowe were, were quite so quiet. Brentford in general, George, promoted to the Premier League. Feels a bit weird, doesn't it? Since since we've been doing the pod the last five years, they've always been initially in the top half, just missing out on the playoffs. And then obviously in the last two years, they finished third both times. You know, it, it we always thought it would happen at some, some stage, but it still deserves a big old chat about Brentford reaching the Premier League. It'll be the last time we talk about them for at least 12 months, maybe longer. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's going to be strange. I think the, the EFL is going to be a worse place for it. Um, I think some long-time listeners to the podcast who don't support Brentford will probably be quite relieved that they can listen to us next season and not have to hear us talk about how um, how great the Brentford model is and how how well run they are. But it's been true, and, and it's something you know. I I, I did five live on on Saturday um, after the whistle, and it's something I said to chappers then i said you know this is this has been inevitable for a long time you know anybody who's followed what brentford have done this has been a case of 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 when not if this has been a case of when are brentford going to get promoted this was always going to end this way and i would argue that rather than this being an amazing achievement which of course it is but i would say they probably underachieved by not doing this sooner you know you look at where they finished every season for the last three or four seasons 
how they've been in the mix for promotions. There's an argument, I would say, that on an individual player-by-player basis, this is probably their worst side in the last two or three years, given the attacking talent that they've lost. But that's kind of, that's it, I guess. This is now such a good team. You know, you, you think of Rico Henry, who they've lost for the, for most of the season. Think of De Silva as well, of Josh De Silva, who, who has been so important to them. You know, losing those t- key players, if you told Brentford fans pre-season that, that was going to be the case, I think they'd have been pretty concerned because given the unknown that Ivan Tony was at championship level, it was probably those two and, and Mbomo who, who were set to be the stars, I guess, and two of them are missing. It's, it's incredible what they've done. Um, and I still think they are going to be a side who who strive and continue to progress. I don't think there's any limit to what they are able to do in football. And anybody who thinks they are going to be coming back down pretty soon, they might well do. You know, Norwich certainly did. But I, I don't think this is going to be a fleeting stay in the Premier League. I think that at worst, Brentford now going to be a side who occupy that position kind of between the Championship and the Premier League, where they might spend a bit of time up and then a bit of time down. But they are doing things very much the right way. Thomas Frank, I think, is, has overseen a total um, change in mindset at the club, I guess. You know, this was Brentford, who, despite all their good data and despite all of their good, um, their good players, were seen as, as a bottle job. They were basically seen as, as the spurs of, of the championship, and that has gone. They are now very, very good at defending. They're very good at winning games of football. They're very good out of possessions, they are in possession. The style of play has changed to maybe not be quite as aesthetically pleasing, but definitely more um, more solid, more impactful. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sad to see them go. I'm very excited to watch them in, in the Premier League as we always are. You know, it reminds me a bit of Leeds this season where they went up and you and I were like, brilliant, this is where they deserve to be and they're going to put it up. Some of those um, Premier League fans and players who, who might not think much of the championship and that's exactly what happened i'm they may have only gone up through the playoffs i'm really excited to see who they sign in the summer um you know it, it is obviously a different game having to recruit for the top tier rather than recruit for the second tier but i'm, I'm pretty sure that they that they're not going to be they're not going to be caught napping on that so yeah farewell to brentford hopefully we don't talk about you for a very long time you mentioned in that answer norwich and leeds uh, and other teams who have gone up uh for, for you know comparisons in different ways could Brighton be the right team to compare Brentford to it's obviously the easy comparison in many ways Brighton owned by very successful professional gambler and lifelong fan of the club Tony Bloom and Brentford owned by very very successful professional gambler and lifelong owner of the club Matthew Benham both of them have poured money into the club and that shouldn't be forgotten by the way Matthew Benham has put a lot of his own personal money into the club um, and while they are run in a semi-sustainable way for a football club it is true that he's um, injected a lot of cash into the club but would they be a good comparison maybe when when looking forward I mean a lot of people are already saying well it's their first time in the Premier League they don't know what it's going to be like you know I wouldn't be surprised to see them bounce straight back down and you can understand that point of view but maybe Brighton given the way that they operate, could be a good comparison. And, and we said goodbye to Brighton three or four years ago and we haven't seen them back in the EFL yet. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there are obviously comparisons. Um, They're also the way... long rivals, aren't they, those two? Yeah, they don't get on too well, I don't think. I mean, I, I would argue that... It's going to be some great athletic articles before the first Brentford-Brighton game next season, although I don't think Benham there's a... Benham and Bloom, the true story behind the hatred. <laughs> I don't um... think there's a lot of public info out there about either of those guys, is there? No, I mean, I went to try and congratulate Matthew Benham on Twitter on Saturday after the game and he's deleted his Twitter, which is a bit of a shame. Um, 
I I personally feel like Brentford's recruitment is kind of one step ahead of Brighton's. Now that's not to say that Brighton's isn't very good, and you know I've, I've got immense respect for what Brighton have done, and I certainly think that if Graham Potter's still there next season, they're not going to be fighting relegation in my eyes. Um, but I do think that Brentford's, you know, as was the case with Neil Morpé, you know, they bought Malpay for what two or three million, and then. Brentford a couple of years years later swoop in for eighteen million. Brighton, it's um, yeah. sorry, Brighton. Uh, yeah, but they, I, I I don't think that Brentford have to model themselves on anybody else. I think they are Brentford. I think that they in Thomas Frank. I think they've definitely got a manager whose style of football will translate pretty well to Premier League football. You know, I don't think they're going to have to change too much. You look at what Brighton did, where they were staying up playing pretty negative football under Chris Hewton and then looked to make a change in order to try and be more positive, which as of yet hasn't really yielded more points, even though I'm I'm pretty convinced they're a much better team for it. I think Frank is somebody who, whilst he's pragmatic, he's, he's definitely a guy who um, I think will set them up as being a team who are both hard to beat and also able to create chances. I'm really excited to see what happens next season. I'm, I'm just really excited to see who their team is going to be because you look at that, you look at that starting lineup from Saturday, I think they're going to look to upgrade in a lot of areas, I think especially in central midfield. You know, you've mentioned Marcondes there. We'll have De Silva back. Um, Yanel, I'm sure, will will stay. He's a young player who's had his first season and is de- developing very well. But in Jensen, in Marcondes, I think that you'll probably see a couple of centre midfielders come in. It's maybe been their worst area of recruitment over the past four or five years. We've seen some come and go pretty quickly uh, in that role. They've recruited very well in defence and obviously in that front three. Um, De Silva being the obvious exception, and now and now Yana, I think as well. But I think we'll see uh, probably a couple of ball playing uh, midfielders come in. But I'm, I'm excited to see who it is. I'm sure they've probably already been working on it for months. And just a last word on Thomas Frank, because Brentford get a lot of credit for their recruitment for how they are able to build good squads while losing star men every year. But actually, I don't think that's the story of this season. I think the story of this season is is the job that Thomas Frank had done. Um, when you have a team that's well known for its recruitment and the manager plays only a small part in that, they don't get the credit for building teams. So unlike Sheffield United, for example, you know Frank gets lots of credit here, but in that realm, he doesn't really get much. But how about credit for, for managing a team each season where your best two players leave and hitting the same standards and sometimes developing as well. Brentford lost the, the playoff final to Fulham on August the 4th and their first game of the season was five and a half weeks later on September the 12th. In that time, Watkins and Ben Rama left. Ivan Tony had signed. Other than that, it was Janelt who came in, as you mentioned, who has made a big contribution. Their other signings really were Charlie Good and Saman Godos, who you have to say have made tiny contributions. So Watkins and Ben Rama... Big contributors gone, Tony and Janelt in. Uh, you know, this wasn't a summer where Brentford gave Thomas Frank a ton of new superstars to, to you know, to bed in. He had to use the, the players at his disposal who were there before, and so many of them have stepped up. Canos, I always think, deserves a special credit just for his selflessness, really. Um, you know, he's ended, up, he's ended the season playing left wing back. He's played almost everywhere this season. And yes, he doesn't have the quality of a Ben Rama, but he's made the most of his ability this season in contributing to Brentford's promotion. And then, yeah, they, they've just, they, they've been rewarded Brentford for so many things there's no secret about how much we admire the way they operate and how we think that they 
and have been saying for a long time they're a blueprint for clubs of a similar size in the EFL who want to move up the EFL food chain and do it in a way that isn't flashing the pan and, and lurching from one season to the next and from one manager to the next but trying to do things um, properly uh, and do things in a way that, that, that really does raise the level of the club for, for the long term but I think there are now a lot of a lot of people uh, imitating or at least trying to use the best bits of Brentford and apply them to their own uh, the way of running their own club and and again we would say that's a good thing to do but the th- the key thing with Brentford which comes across is how brave they are of course they are smart of course they use data better than most of course they have really good long-term planning and succession planning and their recruitment's excellent and their player development record is brilliant but they're so brave in how they in how they do things and I think it takes bravery never to waver when things aren't going your way which happens all the time in football so from the top with Matthew Benham but also with their co-directors of football Rasmus Ankerson and Phil Giles that bravery that complete belief which then floods through the whole coaching staff it, it floods through Thomas Frank and it comes across as arrogance at times for opposition fans but just imagine what conditions that is to work in for any member of staff any player anyone at the club imagine what it's like to work in a club that doesn't waver that isn't trigger happy that doesn't overreact to high emotions good or bad doesn't change its course or change its plans or have a high turnover of staff it just supports the people who are there uh, and makes good decisions I, I i just think it's really impressive there's obviously a lot of a lot of cooks here in all departments thomas frank ankerson and giles i mentioned so many others will be heads of department at brentford but as far as we can tell, they, they don't seem to suffer personality clashes or ego clashes, power struggles, all those other things that can undermine football clubs and do every single season across the EFL behind the scenes. So that's the last word on Brentford. Rewarded for lots of things, but I think uh, bravery being one of them. As for Swansea, George, where does this leave them? It's uh, after a playoff final, emotions are always very, very high. There's a lot of negativity that I've seen amongst Swansea fans mostly to do with the fact that the squad itself, a lot of them will leave. The the Lonies, obviously, Gwehi, Woodman, uh, among others. Ayu will almost certainly leave, you'd have to say. Um, how do you feel about Swans heading into next season? Because they lost in the playoffs last year, but we picked them to finish fourth. We thought they were robust again, uh, robust enough rather to go again. What about next season? It... <sighs> You've got to be positive, I think. And it does surprise me a bit when you still see... I mean, social media is a very small bubble. Um, but I saw someone... I saw a Swansea fan tweeting the Sun journalist, Adam Nixon, saying, Ow, any news on Steve Cooper to Palace? I hope it's a yes, fingers crossed. And I was like, God, you know, you've just lost in a playoff final. You've got a guy who's a rookie manager taking you to two of them. And I, and, and I know, as I say, I know that as one person, but there is, it does seem to be like a, a feeling amongst some areas of the Swansea supporters that Cooper um, has maybe taken them as far as they can go. And I think that's harsh. I think he's overseeing a period of transition, as is always the case when teams come down from the Premier League. That is now three seasons they've spent in the Championship. I think the squad has probably got worse over that time due to necessary cost cutting. Um, and the results on the pitch have got better. They've improved season on season. Um, and for a long part of the season, where we're in the mix of the automatic promotion places. I reckon the fact that they were in that mix and then fell away is probably the reason why some people 
a done with Cooper. I think that's very incredibly harsh. I think he is a manager who is learning on the job and has proven himself to be, you know, that there are a lot of managers at championship level who probably have bigger reputations who I don't think would have got Swansea into the positions they've been in. Um, and one bit that I've liked about him, it's pretty clear that since the Graham Potter days, the style of play has, has changed and it was a gradual transition. You know, Cooper came in and to start with, at least it looked like it was going to be a continuation of the same kind of possession-based football. But I think he just saw that that was the way they'd been coached and he's taken his time to imprint his philosophy and his views on, on how to play onto the side um, in a way that it's quite refreshing because sometimes you see managers come in and just tear everything up and start again. So, I mean, are you presumably moving on because I doubt that they are going to be able to retain him unless he's willing to take a massive wage cut. Is obviously an issue in terms of on-pitch quality, but that 80 grand a week or whatever it is that they're paying him must, you'd think, open up um, some funds for, for Swansea to try and strengthen the squad. And, you know, we've seen that they have a good enough side. We've seen that Cooper is so good at bringing in loan players. You know, you're looking at Gwehi this season as being probably one of the signings of last summer. You know, the Morgan Gibbs-White uh, transfer was a massive coup that just didn't really come off because of his injury and then and then recall back to Wolves um, so yeah I'm I'm positive for Swansea fans I think it, it's obviously difficult to lose a playoff final but it's progress year on year and unless things massively change I think as long as Cooper's there it's hard to really know why there would be a massive drop off um, because Ayu's influence whilst big it, it's not a case of he doesn't bring you 10, 15 points in a season. I think the key sort of bullet points for here's why they might drop off a fair bit. You know, the top one is, can you outrun the underlying numbers for a long time? No, you can't. And we started to see that come to fruition this season. You know, last 12 games, was it, of the season, they were mm. they had the 17th best record in the league. That's a, a concerning way to finish the season, even if ultimately they still had this extra three games where they could have won promotion. And I think... Let's say Cooper's there to start the season. If they start poorly, if they start playing, if they start the season playing in the manner that they finished it, I fi- I'm going to find that atmosphere hard to to turn around um, for someone like Cooper, even though we like him a lot. Now, of course, he's the second favourite for the Crystal Palace job. His credit's pretty high. I think the general idea of Steve Cooper, people's um, rating of him, is is higher on the outside than maybe it is uh, amongst the Swansea fan base, as you've said, but he ticks a lot of boxes in terms of young coach, young player development, where he's come from. I think he is going to be sought after. Um, I do actually feel he's more attached to Swansea uh, than most managers are to their clubs, just on a human level. That's hard to, that's hard to really prove or predict, but that's the feeling I get. At the same time, would you begrudge him cashing in while his credit is this high and taking another job I, I never really begrudge managers in doing so because the industry that they're in uh, you know it can all turn around very very quickly so that plus the squad rebuild needed you know if, if they've got good central midfield players in Grimes and Fulton they've got pretty good fullbacks in Bidwell and Roberts they'll have Jamal Lowe they'll need a lot of help in the final third for sure uh, they'll need to go again with the low knees, but it's a big job, put it that way. They'd need a very good window and their parachute payments are now gone completely. Now, I probably worry less for them on an existential level as a club getting into financial issues compared to someone like Stoke because Swansea have really cut their cloth accordingly since they came down from the Premier League in a way that other teams haven't done and tend to get into trouble further down the line. But there's no doubt that losing that will make it harder to build their squad because you lose 
a huge advantage, a financial advantage that you had over the rest of the league. So I can see why Swansea fans would be um, a bit concerned heading into next season. But let's see how we look in, in six weeks' time when we start doing our pre-season predictions content. Everything could change in that point. Now, the League One playoff final was between Blackpool and Lincoln. George, it was, a, as you kind of said at the top of the show, this was an intriguing game. In some ways, an unusual playoff game with some unusual moments in it. Not least... The fact that Lincoln City arrived at Wembley late. Terrible accident on the North Circular. But it still feels a bit like, come on, lads, you had one job to get to the get to the playoff final. Well, and time. also, but, and, but the weird thing about that is that I was, again, when I was on Five Live on Saturday afternoon, Michael Appleton joined us for 10 minutes on the show and they were on the coach down from Lincoln. So it wasn't as if they... Yeah, but you still have to get they, from the hotel to the ground, I guess. Well, yeah, of course. But you, you mean you'd think they'd be staying fairly close, wouldn't you? I, don't, I mean, maybe they were staying there, in some no nice, point. some nice swanky hotel in Hertfordshire or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. That must have been it. Um, anyway, they arrive late. Everyone was like, "Is that good or bad for their preparations?" You know, they looked a little rushed, if I'm honest. And then they were ahead after 48 seconds. We looked at the teams. We saw Brennan Johnson was going to be playing right wing and we thought they need to get him one-on-one with Luke Garber as early as possible. And it took 30 seconds and it led to them going one and up. It was the most remarkable start to uh, to any of the three playoff finals, you have to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the, the start they made in the home leg against Sunderland where they just came out of the block so quickly very very different to the start they made in the in the away leg against Sunderland where they didn't turn up in the first half um they just immediately looked to get on the front foot and to attack um which was which was great to see and, and as you mentioned Johnson versus Garbutt you know, Luke Garbutt has a lot of um good technical uh sides to his game but as a one-on-one defender he's often found lacking and Brennan Johnson is a is, is a championship level at worst quality winger who who kind of did him straight away within a minute and put the ball in for um for Turton to to put into the back of his own net. It it's such a weird one because I'm I'm not gonna I don't um subscribe to the cliche of you know that was kind of the worst thing that could have happened you know you scored too early is the cliche you know that's the worst thing that could have happened and I liked it when Pratt said to Russell Martin did they score too early and Russell Martin was like no they they scored which is which is a good thing. But having said that, there is an element here where, for Michael Appleton's side, look two two big things in that first, well three big things in that first kind of hour of the game. Firstly, they arrive late, which definitely cannot be a positive in terms of you know this is a massive occasion for a lot of these players, and for them to be sitting on a team bus wondering if they're going to miss kickoff and stuff isn't going to be good preparation. Number two was that Ellis Sims, the Blackpool striker, um, who just bullied Oxford in the first leg and has bullied many teams so far this season um, being a very surprising omission from the matchday squad having injured himself taking a penalty in the training the day before the final penalty of practice collapsing in a heap um, and whilst of course that is a massive blow to Blackpool I have no doubt that a lot of time is spent by Link- in Lincoln's preparation knowing that they were coming up against an Ellis Sims Jerry Yates front two so Yes, it's a positive, but in terms of preparation, it's not ideal. And then to come into a game and have a 1-0 lead in a game of this magnitude, knowing that you've got to try and basically sit on it for 94 minutes is a difficult thing to do. And again, it goes completely in the face of whatever you've prepared. So I'm not necessarily making excuses for for Appleton's side. And and as I say, being 1-0 up after a minute is certainly a positive. But in terms of the game that they thought they were going to be getting, it was entirely different. 
they they went very very close to making it 2-0 with pretty much their only other attack of the first half where George Grant um, hit a beautiful right-footed curling effort which kind of clipped the joint on its way through um, with Chris Maxwell totally beaten but you know Blackpool were the better side on the day there's no question about that how much that was to do with game state we'll never know because as soon as they you know, it was always likely that Blackpool were going to get themselves back into the game and as soon as they made it one all there was only one team in the ascendancy um, and it was just a pretty surprising double goal scoring hero to um, to take them up to the championship yeah I think that any blanket statement such as they've scored too early is just wrong across you know, if you were to apply that to, to any team that scored in the first minute of the playoff final, then I would certainly sort of argue against that as a general concept. We know that scoring the first goal in general means uh, your team winning 75% of games in the EFL. But I do think in this specific matchup, it, it certainly had an interesting impact on the game and how it might have played out had they not scored that early, put it that way. I don't think, in a weird way, it suited either side in terms of their strengths and how they had to then spend the next 45 minutes, let's say, until until halftime or until Dougal equalised. Lincoln, I think, suffered from having something to defend. I, I think... You know, I think we know the psychological impact of having a one-goal lead, suddenly having something to lose, and you know that that clearly does have um, has has an impact on how teams play, whether it's with five minutes to go or after forty-eight seconds. And I think that that didn't necessarily suit Lincoln because they are better playing probably a game, you know, more level, trying to attack a little bit more, attack probably their strength rather than defending. But then Blackpool themselves, their strength doesn't come with breaking down a low block, which is kind of what Lincoln reverted to in order to to soak up the pressure. And of course, they did end up winning the game and turning it around, but you can't get away from the fact that both goals were shots from the edge of the box. um, And, you know, on another day, did they create a ton of chances in 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 Lincoln's box in the six yard area? No, they didn't. So I thought it, it it just it made the game very interesting and possibly made Lincoln a little uncomfortable, made Blackpool maybe a little uncomfortable. But of course they came out on top. And I think you know they were so calm, Blackpool. Um, and I think that's very much in the image of their manager Neil Critchley, who is getting so much credit and rightly so for the best, one of the best rather first seasons in management I can remember. But a lot of the talk, including from myself, um, was about how Blackpool are known for getting the ball forward quickly into Yates and Sims because they've got that physical threat and because it just makes sense to do that when you've got those two up top. But on Sunday, they really were patient. They were moving the ball fairly slowly, um, getting it into the final third and then not forcing it. They were being pretty patient. And I think it was that composure that, that helped them. And of course, it all came down to to Kenny Dougal. Uh, he had one goal all season before the playoffs. That was against Oxford in the regular season. He then scored against Oxford in the playoffs. You could say mm. Kenny Dougal was due a goal. And then could Kenny do a goal? Well, Kenny did a goal. And then it was Kenny duo goal to make it 2-1. Two-goal Dougal, as they're calling him now up in Blackpool. What an unlikely and wonderful hero uh, Kenny Dougal was for the Tangerine Army, George. Yeah, incredible. Two amazing finishes. And, you know, I, I was saying on the the NTT20 squad, our, our leveller community at halftime, I was like, yeah, you know, Blackpool might have had loads of shots, but most of those shots have actually been kind of from range and, and Lincoln uh, may not have had many shots, but then the goal didn't really count. But it doesn't really matter when you've got Kenny Dougal just stroking them home from 20 yards both times. Yes, um, he can. 
and and that was you know that was the one bit of this game where maybe um the narrative and the scoreline doesn't really reflect what happened was that it, you know even though blackpool were by far the superior side in terms of, of keeping the ball and, and looking more dangerous and getting the ball into dangerous areas they didn't create many good chances at all i think the lack of sims really showed there you know they had a lot of shots but most of those shots were, were basically pot shots from range and it was kind of fortunate not not fortunate fortunate is the wrong word george it was it was um their own good finishing i guess they meant the two of those did kind of fly in and they were both great finishes as well i think palmer maybe could have done better for the first one he goes down quite late and he gets a hand on it um but you know for, for blackpool this is so deserved you know six defeats in their first nine we often f- forget that they basically built their whole squad over the course of the summer with a manager neil critchley who'd only taken charge of a couple of games towards the back end of last season and I really think, you know, given how well they've recruited and given how they basically just went out and, and sought out Neil Critchley, who didn't apply for the job, they literally went and found him and said, we want you to manage our club, which is so niche. You know, normally that happens when you've got a manager who's who's achieved a fair bit in the game. Um, it looks to me like someone or some people at Blackpool are making some pretty smart decisions. Um and I'm excited to see how they recruit next season because this is a side who, in a very, very short space of time, have, have completely turned around. You know, given their off-field issues previously and the new owner that's come in, the the, the speed at which the, the positive um, changes have come is pretty impressive. Um, and I, and I, it, I fancy them to have the processes in place to make a really good go of improving again next season for their championship campaign. I certainly agree with that. Um, certainly agree with that. I just want to mention a possible penalty shout for Lincoln. 76th minute was quite good. Well, it was quite a good shout, but there wasn't a huge appeal and it, it wasn't really made that much of it. Uh, and then a really good chance for Regan Poole at the end, which was an absolutely classic you always get one chance, George. You know, there's like five minutes to go and you, you they always say, you'll have one chance. It's just about who it falls to. And you did not want it to fall to Regan Poole, I'm afraid. But certainly the right result on the day. Um, a, certainly a deserved promotion. Such a complete team. Blackpool, mightily impressive. You know, not to be phased by, by the worst possible start. And not flashy either. Blackpool, just very, very good in all areas of the pitch. And I think Lincoln without being harsh because their season has been nine and a half out of ten Lincoln City I think the difference between them is Lincoln are quite are very good in flashes um, but I don't think they have the same consistency of performance across 90 minutes that Blackpool have they their attacking players do go missing a little bit they go quiet for large periods and they're probably just not as solid uh, at the back for Blackpool well they got relegated three times in six seasons from the Premier League all the way down to League Two. At that time, the disconnect well, was much more than that, wasn't it, between the fans and the owners was about as bad as it gets. There was a four-year boycott. Some Blackpool fans, lifelong Blackpool fans, didn't go to Bloomfield Road for four years to watch their team um, as they tried to get the Oystons basically out of the club. And now it's two promotions in five seasons. They have the dream owner in Simon Sadler, who is lifelong fan of the club, has a lot of money and wants to put it into the club, seemingly, as you said, has the right people making the right decisions in order for the football club to grow outside of just having money. They have the dream manager, Neil Critchley, handpicked from the Liverpool Academy, first full season with the club, promoted, seems to be the dream modern manager. They were the best team in the league from late October after that poor start. They were the best team in the playoffs 
Um, it's just been an unbelievable few months for them. And I agree with you. I think they're in good shape for the championship next season. I think if the season started next weekend with the same squads, all hypothetical, obviously, I'd pick them to finish the highest of the three, actually, above Hull and, and Peterborough. Um, now, let's see where we are in six weeks' time. That That's very premature. But that's how strongly I think um, Blackpool head up into the championship compared to a lot of um, League One promoted teams. But we know the gap is very, very big. One weird wrinkle when it comes to Lincoln City, all three of those teams, Hull and Peterborough and Blackpool, that won promotion from League One, they all got promoted against Lincoln, which is insane when you think about it. Like, <laughs> the, the the things that have to happen for that to happen, I mean, it's absolutely nuts. But Lincoln have basically seen three teams achieve their season goals uh, having just played against Lincoln City, which is a bit of a sickener. Maybe it'll motivate them heading into next season. George, I feel like... There's probably quite a lot of people who think maybe they've they've missed their window. Uh, you know, they had this chance and it's going to be tough for them next season in a strong-looking League One. Um, what do you think about Lincoln City's chances next season? Having been pretty glowing about my thoughts on their manager over the last few days on social media, I'm, I'm careful not to go too overboard here. But I, I yeah, I think as long as Appleton's there, they're going to be very good. His, his loan record previous to this season has always been exemplary so yes Morgan Rogers yes Brendan Johnson probably won't be at Lincoln next season but I have no reason to doubt that he won't have a few more irons in the fire of players that he knows who will come in and, and improve them um, and he said you know he said to you and I back in in August before the season started he said this group in his opinion was one season off being a team who could look to get promoted out of league one um, and I'm so I, I'm not going to doubt him in that respect. I think he, a lot of the players who, who are their players will have improved a fair bit over the course of the season. It, it's probably not ideal um, when you look at their squad, just how flush their first eleven is with loanies. You know, we mentioned Palmer. There's obviously the Spurs defender as well. Um, but yeah, as I said, there's 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 no reason to think he won't be able to to recruit well again. And he is just a manager who's destined for. For the very top and, and Lincoln's uh, short term um, future will probably depend on how long he stays at the club, because I, I still think, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we've already seen him linked to the Bristol City job twice in a season. and We saw him linked to the West Brom job as well. Um, those links are going to keep coming. And the worst thing, you know, I think for Lincoln, if they are going to be a side who are up towards the top end of League One next season, it's going to be pretty hard for them to keep him for the duration because the longer that this overachievement continues, just the more sought after he will be. Um, but they just have to, you know, that as long as he's at the club, uh, as was the, the case with the Cowley brothers, um, they're in a, a pretty good spot. Mm. It's hard to judge the strength of a division. It's even harder to predict the strength of a division ahead of next season. The, the consensus seems to be that League One is, is setting up very nicely. Uh, it should be a brilliant, group of teams and you know that's part of the reason why people think that it'll be more difficult for Lincoln to to go again and, and repeat this feat of, of finishing in the playoff places and, and of course challenging as they did in the first half of the season for automatic promotion I, I must admit my gut instinct is to kind of reject that notion but I, I think I actually do slightly buy into it when it comes to this specific one I agree with you that Appleton's record in the transfer market gives me great hope that they will have other excellent loan players, probably other great permanent signings. Um, I do think there's probably something in like 
I, I don't think they'll be a way worse than they were this season. Put it that way, Lincoln. I don't see them becoming a much worse team. But if the level around them is raised, and of course it's going to be difficult for them to, to repeat this feat. So if you subscribe to the view that Sunderland will be stronger than 77 points in 46 games that they got this season, that Oxford and Charlton and Portsmouth, who finished in the three places below Lincoln, will be similar or stronger. Um, Ipswich Town, if you subscribe to the view that they will get it right under Paul Cook. And then you're looking at teams like MK Dons, who finished the season so strongly, Burton Albion, um, Donny, who have appointed Richie Wellens, Argyle, you know, that's without the three teams coming down from the championship. So I I, I, I do sort of see where people are coming from if that's what they're suggesting I when think, it comes to Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, they're the one side probably more than any other where you just have to see what they look like in in at the end of July. It's impossible probably to say now. Just all I my thinking is I would personally have more faith hmm it's difficult i'd have more faith in lincoln recruiting well than a couple of those teams you mentioned probably like you know we have to assume with sunderland that they will because they put the due process in place but they don't necessarily have the track record for doing so yet oxford do have a good track record of bringing new blood in and new players in um but in terms of the the amount of players you know, they're going to have to sell to replace, and those players they're going to sell are going to be hard to replace. Charlton, again, with Sunderland, is there the track record there yet? Not necessarily. So, yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. And certainly Lincoln, having cut their wage bill last summer, probably have it, have it all to do in order to overachieve. Whereas you'd, I would argue that the Charlton, Sunderland and, and Oxfords, given their budgets, will probably be looking to, you know, a, any worse than this season would be a failure to an extent. Um, so... Yeah, it's hard to measure now how Lincoln will look next season. But I, yeah, I'd be very, very surprised if this is just a real flash in the pan and next season they're they're, they're struggling to survive because um, they're a club who've operated very well from from much before the time that Appleton arrived, and and it does feel like he's now, you know, it felt at times last season to be honest in the second half of the campaign like his heart wasn't really in it, and I think that was just a case of getting to the end of the season so that he could put his stamp on the side, and I think we'll see that come even more so over the summer. League Two playoff final was between Newport County and Morecambe and it's the Shrimps Morecambe who won promotion with a penalty in extra time. George, there was almost nothing in this over the 120 minutes plus added time that they played. This felt like a much more classic playoff final, if you will. Um, And we have to, sadly, start by talking about key decisions by the referee Bobby Madley because to all intents and purposes that's really what decided what was a, a incredibly tight game yeah it was um and that it, it's a shame that we have to talk about this because the achievement of Morecambe to get promoted to League One is amongst one of the greatest EFL achievements certainly the time we've done the podcast and, or before and, and we will do it justice don't you and we, and, we, and we will do it justice but I think on this you know on this pod recapping the games we have to say that Newport were unbelievably unlucky um to be on the receiving end of a defeat here not only did were they um not given a, a pretty blatant penalty uh when Ledrin just punched uh, I don't know who, who was it who, who hit in the Bennett. face yeah, Bennett in the face when Bennett got to the ball first. It's just a blatant penalty. If you're challenging for the ball and you get there first and someone wipes you out, that is a penalty. Not even to mention that a double fist to the face is probably dangerous play as well. So you could argue that could have been even even further punishment. Um, and then 
the chance I mean the chance that that Labadee missed of course is unlucky but that is part of football you can't for the fans it's it's a massive dagger through the heart because they had the best chance of the game to win it and everything in between the penalty decision and the bad miss was basically Newport pressure now I I, I don't buy into that as much as others because I think that if you watched a lot of Morecambe's games this season games that they've won I reckon the the team that they've beaten will come away thinking how have we lost that because we controlled the game and had all the ball I mean that is how Morecambe like to play um, and it's how they are so good normally but they offered very very little going forwards um, if we're going to be honest and the penalty decision itself was was really poor you know I on first viewing I thought it was a foul and thought it was a foul just outside the area the more you see it it doesn't look necessarily like a trip. And I think the ball's already gone anyway. Um, a really poor decision from Bobby Madley, which causes um, an opportunity for Carlos Mendes Gomez, who I thought had a pretty poor game um, to to score from the spot, which he does and sends Morecambe to, to League One. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll get excited for Morecambe in a second. But for Newport fans who... I'm sure the majority of those, what was it, 6,000 fans there yesterday for Newport who who were there were probably also there two years ago to see them go into injury time at 0-0 and then concede in the 119th minute Conor Jennings' goal to to be knocked out. It is really horrid for them because that was just heartbreak. This is heartbreak and and and, and injustice, to be mm. honest, even if Derek Adams doesn't really care. I've got no sympathy for them, he said. <laughs> Three times this season, they've had three of our players sent off. In life, justice. And that was justice. And then he went again. Sometimes in life, you get your comeuppance. And today was that, I'm afraid. No sympathy for Derek Adams. Um, Mixed reaction to that, I think it's fair to say, on social media. Some people saying football's not about class. And others saying that is not the right way to react after a win like that. Um, Regardless, the, the match itself was... Well, it was it was a League Two playoff final in what twenty five degree heat. I think the conditions made it made it really tough for both teams. Made it tough for this to be a proper ding dong, but it did mean there was a lovely tension to it, didn't it? Um, just as you predicted, Newport made the pitch as big as possible in possession, but as I predicted, Atletico de Morecambe were <laughs> not hugely phased about that. Now, even having said that, I'm sure. Um, and, and even having picked Morecambe to win the League Two playoffs and having a bit of a financial stake in this, it was still it's still nervy even when you even when you've sort of said no no this is what they want this is what they're comfortable with and I'm sure Morecambe fans would have spent most of that game you know behind the sofa because you know Newport obviously had more of the ball they obviously had more chances more shots better chances eleven shots inside the box. Um, none of them clear cut until Labadee stabbed over from six yards in 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 extra time. You'd say. Uh, I thought Dimitri played really well for for Newport. Boyd by an interview with you on uh, Totally Football League show <laughs> second half of last week. I think Sheehan did his best. Um, you know he he was dictating play from very deep. He got a little further forward. He did a little bit better in the second half in terms of playing you know drawing men and playing good passes to his teammates, but probably just didn't have the quality in front of him. Um, to make the most of that, unlike in the first part of the season where Scott Twine, for example, would have thrived with with some of Sheehan's, you know, picking him out in, in good pockets of space. So it didn't necessarily go too differently to how we thought the game would go. You, you, you're right that Morecambe didn't really get going in attack at all, did they? Um, what they did do is defend their box magnificently um, from 12 corners for Newport, from countless Dimitri Long throws. 
it was amazing the way that they that they defended with with such strength. Ten clearances for Lavelle, ten clearances for Songo, who dropped into a back three at one point, which I thought was interesting. And actually, I think some of the Morecambe fans didn't really enjoy that. They would have preferred him screening in front of the back four. But, you know, I, I suppose with hindsight, did it work? Did it not work? It's very difficult to make real analysis of a game where it was decided by um, by penalty decision like that. The, the fact is, it's hard to say the Shrimps deserve to win that particular match. But let's talk about the incredible achievement. Um, George, you actually tweeted afterwards, that's one of the finest achievements in EFL history from Derek Adams, understated as ever on social media. <laughs> uh, it's impossible to see it any other way. I just keep coming back to the fact that, you know, you speak to anybody who loves their EFL a couple of years ago and it's just widely accepted that Jim Bentley was doing one of the best jobs in, in the whole div- in, in all the three leagues by keeping Morecambe afloat fairly comfortably every season I remember when he left to go to AFC Fylde everyone was like uh oh that is the end for Morecambe what's going to happen now and he's just taken them to a completely new level it's um, it's incredible what he's done to to take this you know if you think of the playing budget that they've got Think of the speed at which he's instigated this turnaround. You know, it is, of course, it's similar to, to the Accrington Stanley story and, and the job that John Coleman has done, except it's on fast forward. It's taken him 18 months to, to take them from the bottom of League Two into League One. Um, I am just kind of frustrated and a bit sad that it looks like he's going to be moving on to go to Bradford. Um, it's obviously a good thing for Bradford fans, uh, but I think when you've got a, a story like this, and a promotion like this, if he does leave, um, it's going to be pretty hard for Morecambe to bring in a manager who'll be able to to get them competing at, at League One level. Um, whether they or not they can keep some key players, you know, clearly uh, Mendes Gomez is the one that they're going to um, want to keep. Well, the fans, I think, will want to keep. I think it might be fairly important for Morecambe to cash in and then actually use some of that money to strengthen. Otherwise, they could be in serious trouble. I think having four or five new players that maybe Mendes Gomez could could bring in would be much more important than having one. Um, but it's just amazing. It's just a, an amazing story. It's what the EFL is all about. Um, it's great that some Morecambe fans were able to be there having had to miss basically the whole season of this incredible roller coaster campaign. Uh, and I'm excited for Morecambe away next season. I hope I get to go. We will be visiting very swiftly. When we are allowed, there's no doubt about that. You're right to mention Mendes Gomez. He he's become the big name in this Morecambe team. Uh, I think we've certainly contributed to that over the last 18 months. But actually, if you were a team in League One or the Championship and you were watching Morecambe's three playoff games with transfer interest in mind, it's not that Mendes Gomez played poorly, but he de- he he didn't necessarily have the big moments that maybe we would have hoped he'd have. Certainly at Wembley on, on Monday, there were quite a few moments where he was leading a counter-attack and you thought that could be the moment for him either to carry the ball all the way and then slip in a teammate or um, you know play a pass out wide and get on the end of it in the middle and, and it just never quite came off. But I think if you were watching those games with that in mind, Sam Lavelle would be certainly attracting a, a much closer look and I think it's worth flagging him up at this stage not as sexy a player as Carlos Mendes Gomez certainly not as sexy a backstory but in Lavelle you've got a 24 year old captain 
of a team that's achieved, in your words, one of the greatest things in EFL history, who plays like a veteran defender, and to be fair, has already played over 125 league games for Morecambe. So, you know, literally is more of a veteran than his than his age would suggest, who every single member of the squad was just like, this kid, This guy's unbelievable, the way that he is um, around the club. And I think was probably their star man on, on Monday, personally, that, that's my opinion, um, with the way that he defended their box. So he's probably the one that I'd be keeping a close eye on, as well as Mendes Gomez this summer, in terms of transfer interest, in terms of which of this exact team might play at the highest level, maybe might reach the championship in the next few years. Mendes Gomez would probably be the favourite, um, but Lavelle, I think, is uh, is certainly one to watch. And the squad itself has to just be mentioned and the way that it's been built on obviously on a shoestring budget. Carl Leatherin, the goalkeeper, spent the first half of this season in the National League with Chesterfield before joining on a free in Jan. Um, you know, I, as far as I can tell from his social media, in his eyes, his professional playing career, his EFL playing career was finished. He's focusing on on coaching and on yeah being a goalkeeper coach in the future, like his father is, who was also a, uh, a very talented uh, professional goalkeeper back in the day. And here he was, you know, apart from punching Bennett in the head, um, <laughs> uh, you know, made some some key saves. Nothing incredible, you'd say, but some important saves that needed to be made. Um, but, you know, that kind of sums it up, picking him up on a free from the National League in January. Cooney on loan from Burnley. Uh, Gibson, the other fullback, he was released by Newcastle in the summer and picked up uh, off the scrap heap, if you wanted to be um, dramatic about it. Lavelle, who I've just talked about, he didn't make it at Blackburn. He didn't make it at Bolton, um, but he certainly has made it at Morecambe. Nat Knight Percival next to him, unwanted by Carlisle and Chris Beach and joined Morecambe. Songo, unwanted by Scunthorpe, another League Two club, has been a star man for them. Diagaraga, unwanted by Swindon in January of 2020, another League Two club at the time, gets a free transfer to Morecambe. Aaron Wildig's been there since 2015. He was a free transfer from Shrewsbury, who didn't really fancy him. They'd sent him out on loan before releasing him to Morecambe. Liam McAlinden, a bit like Leatherin, they picked him up from non-league. Um, he'd left Cheltenham in 2018. He'd been he'd played for two clubs uh, in non-league before before Morecambe gave him an opportunity to prove himself. Um, Mendes Gomez, of course, they signed. Well, I'm not sure they signed him from West Didsbury and Chalton, um, but that's where he was playing his football beforehand. Uh, and then Cole Stockton up front, who, you know, he didn't get particularly close to scoring uh, in the playoff final, but some of his hold-up play, the, the ball just sticks to him in a way that is astonishing for someone who's not actually the tallest. His, the use of body and just levering defenders off him in order to, to be able to bring the down, bring the ball down on his chest or on his or his knee or on his thigh um, rather than challenging for an aerial duel. It's incredible skill he has, I must admit, and I'm sure you know, even if his goal record isn't amazing, there must be a lot of people who play a certain way who look at that and think, you know, could he be doing this at a higher level? Uh, he was unwanted by Tramir, um, picked up on a free in 2019. So it just shows you, well, it just underlines the story of this of this group of players uh, and, the, and and what Derek Adams has managed to get out of them, which, which sort of defies general footballing logic, I think. Uh, and as you say, and I couldn't put it better, it's absolutely what the EFL is all about. It's one of the many reasons why we absolutely love covering these leagues. So congratulations to Morecambe. Commiserations to Newport. The list of League Two playoff final losers in the last five years, George, is Exeter, Exeter, Newport, Exeter, and now Newport. God. So that's pretty tough. Um, what about Newport's prospects for next season? Difficult to say now with emotions high. Flynn said after the game he'd consider his future. 
Uh, Dan, a Newport fan who's part of our NTT20 squad on Leveller, he seemed convinced that Sheehan, Shepard and Dimitri will all be off. Um, yeah, emotions very high right now. You can kind of see, as always, where the negativity is coming from. But I'm finding it hard to see why they just drop like a stone. But anything can happen over the next few weeks. It, it took them some time, didn't it, last season <clears throat> after their... So not the season we've just had, the season before that, to kind of bounce back after the playoff final defeat. Uh, and I guess in that season, it felt a bit more like the Morecambe campaign, as in nobody expected Newport to do what they did and they got to the playoff final. And then it was a huge blow for them not to get there. I think under under Flynn, they are now an established good League Two side. And again, it doesn't seem much reason to me why that will change so long as he's there. I mean, you mentioned that he's going to consider his future. Um, I, I don't really see why he would leave. It seems like it's kind of the thing you say when you're hurting a bit after after a, a kick in the nudges. Um you know, he's somebody who I'm sure his next job will be in League One or, or possibly even League uh, the Championship if it's a if it's a um, you know a, one of the smaller sides in the Championship. Um, you know, he's he's got a burgeoning reputation. I, I don't see any reason why he would leave um, unless he's just feeling completely burnt out, which you can understand after the few years that he's had. He's done an amazing job. Um, I think they're in a really good position. Another side who, similar to Morecambe, shop in, in in kind of areas where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to pick up players who are good enough to, to challenge for the, the top of League Two, but they, they consistently do. Um, and that's testament to the coaching job, I think, of Flynn himself. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's horrible to go through what they've been through over the last couple of seasons. It wouldn't surprise me massively if there was, if there was a bit of a hangover, um, a, you know, a bit of a struggle to, to rebuild and get that... that get that kind of um, form back early on next season. But, they, you know, they've changed the way they're playing. They've relayed their pitch. Um, so I think early next season, we're going to see more of that beautiful passing football that we saw at the beginning of this season. And the results were amazing. So, um, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me hugely if they are a team where if they, if they keep hold of Flynn, where they can really kick on next campaign. Um, but it's going to be a, a test of their metal to see if they can do that. With the return of fans and hopefully full stadia next season, Basically, every club we talk about at the moment, George, as you're talking, I'm just dreaming of visiting next season. That's the same with yes. Newport County. I've not been to Rodney Parade. I want to see this nice new pitch. There's some decent golf around there as well. Celtic Manor, not too far away. Um, I'm so excited for next season. And yet, this is the end of our last podcast of this season. And I'm also very excited about the next four to six weeks where you and I will be recharging i think is is probably the best um phrase to use uh, you will be getting married in july which i am just so excited about and i'm sure you are too i am also in the process of planning a wedding for next summer so there's lots for us to be getting our teeth stuck into but this is the last podcast of the crazy 2021 season we've done 78 ntt 20 pods this season by my count it's normally a bit more than that but we didn't do much bonus content we couldn't do we couldn't get out on the road and do the normal interviews that we that we like to do and that we hope to do next season and of course the season itself was a little bit shorter um we did a lot of totally football league show extra time episodes which we really enjoyed in the second half of, of the weeks this season um we had and i think grew and developed a, a really enjoyable sky friday night segment which we absolutely loved was the highlight of my week for the most part and um, we both worked on efl on quest as league one league two pundits which is just insane to be on a saturday night 
EFL highlights show uh, and you specifically and, and me stepping in a couple of times um, was a fixture on BBC Radio 5 Live's Saturday programming covering the EFL and Sports Report and that historic show with some of the greatest broadcasters that we look up to so much. So it's been an amazing season. It's been very, very tough in in the same ways as it's been tough for everyone. Um, and I just wondered if you had anything that you wanted to say before we sign off for um, probably around six weeks. Yeah, I'm really excited not to have to look at your little weird face in the screen <laughs> of my Skype every Monday. No, I mean, it's been... It's been great. It's kind of, I know we took a small break last summer, but it doesn't really feel like it. It's felt like because of um, what happened last year and it's been very difficult for everybody. And there was a time kind of back in in March and April last year where we were desperate to keep doing the pod because we weren't really sure what the hell was going on in the world. And we didn't really know as two freelancers. Um, it felt for, for a brief minute, you know, there was talk of regionalization of the EFL and maybe the end of, of, of kind of professional football at that level. Yeah, thankfully that hasn't come to pass. Fingers crossed, um, you know, fingers crossed all of the uh, sustainability issues around football that continue to be top of the agenda. Um, and thank you for everybody to li- for listening during that difficult time because it's been great for us. And we are going to have a break. I'm going to be seriously up for it. I hope you're ready. Yeah. Come mid-July is a married man, fresh off the back of probably a two-day honeymoon somewhere on a in a coastal hotel which we haven't booked yet um i'm going to be absolutely frothing to get back into the action and to go to games and just to have you know football as we remember it hopefully back again so i'm just hoping the next time we speak the all the news and stuff around stadiums and fans continues to be good and we can get back to what we're doing best and hopefully ali me and you can actually do podcasts sitting at a table together imagine wouldn't that be nice mate i'm gonna be it happens every year i'm like oh i can't wait for a break from thinking and talking about football and it doesn't take that long for me to start being like oh can we can we start doing some content so we'll see how that goes i'll certainly (laughs) be frothing to use that phrase again um come mid-july i've actually got um, the week before we will record our 1 to 24s, I'm spending a week in Lancaster. Um, my girlfriend, fiance, uh, is doing a, a, another flower course up there. And to all intents and purposes, my plan for that week is to spend 10 till 4 every day while she's at, on the course in various like Cumbrian pubs doing research, just reading about teams, working out my opinions, looking at transfers, looking at managers and making sure we're, we are you know, making sure we're better at our 1-24s to in July as we were this season where we thought we did quite well. And I think just looking back at this season, you've said a lot there, but we might as well be self-indulgent for two more minutes. I'm probably most proud of our availability in footballing terms. It's like like a player that plays every minute of a league season that doesn't need subbing off, is always ready to go. And I don't for a minute think that our content is always incredible. We don't always promise a star performance and amazing analysis every single pod, but we just kept going and we didn't miss a single show this season. I don't think we missed a single show last season as well. Um, That's not an incredible feat. We have the easiest and best job in the world. There's no doubt about that, but I think it's still important. That's the thing that I'm probably most proud of and and most sort of determined to continue next season. And we feel a big responsibility to do so as well, because you guys are so unbelievably encouraging and uh, for the most part, very loving about uh, not the top 20 pod and our coverage of the EFL that we definitely feel a big responsibility to do that, um, even as, you know, sort of wider broadcasting opportunities crop up. We, we have no intention of of stopping doing any of this anytime soon. Um, but also just thank you, George, to you 
Uh, I don't think... Thank well, you, Ali. I know this year would have been a lot better. I'm not sure I'll go as far as say I wouldn't have been able to do it without you, but um, certainly with you cajoling me, encouraging me, boosting me at times where I might have been a bit down. Uh, I don't know how last the last year would have looked without uh, <laughs> without a pod partner like yourself. So thank you very much. And you said that you don't know if you could do it without me. I'd love to see your hour and 10 minute monologue EFL pod for a season. It would be fascinating but i mean i'm sure you'd i'm sure you'd nail it um thank you to you too ali you're an excellent podcast partner maybe one day when you're um michael appleton's and russell martin's agent and you have to stop doing the pod yes then maybe it'll just be monologues um and neil critchley and neil critchley um but thank you all of you guys as well um every tweet every retweet to be honest means a lot as well because that means that someone who follows you that doesn't follow us might come across us for the first time and we're always looking to grow and grow and grow it's always all we've ever wanted to do really uh, every debate on twitter every kind and encouraging word you know you don't understand what that does for us um obviously the harsh words hurt but the encouraging ones make a massive difference especially this year when we haven't been able to you know leave the flat when you're just sitting in a box room with, with with nowhere really to go, to explore, to express yourself and sort of decompress, those messages really give us motivation to keep going. So, yeah, we have the, the easiest job in the world. It, it probably couldn't be any better than this. Next season is going to be a celebration of the EFL. We're going to hit the road as much as possible. Delighted that George has finally got his driver's license so he can share, <laughs> so we can share, the, uh, share the driving. But we're just very lucky. The content comes easily because of the three leagues that we cover and the various players and managers and other people within them. And all that we try and do is, is put, do it justice, basically, by putting the time and effort and some thought into what we say as well and, and by showing as much passion as we can. And hopefully that comes through uh, into your ears. And I've absolutely loved it. So there you go. Thank you, everyone. We're going to be even better next season, aren't we? And I can't wait for it. Yes. Uh, George, uh, I want to say have a good break and all that sort of stuff, but the reality is we'll probably be playing golf with each other. I'm seeing seeing you tomorrow. About three times a week. Guys, go well. Um, Bit of a break from us in terms of the pod. You won't see us a huge amount on social in the month of June, that's for sure, but we will be monitoring things. Um, So do let us know uh, if you have anything to say. And thank you, as always, for listening. Join us again next season, the 21-22 EFL season, here on the Not The Top 20 podcast. (laughs) 